This podcast is produced by the Center for Deployment Psychology at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Uniformed Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. In addition, references to any specific companies, products, processes, or services does not necessarily constitute or imply endorsement by the Uniformed Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Welcome to CDP's podcast, Practical for Your Practice. We give you actionable intel to support what you do. One colleague to another. Welcome to Practical for Your Practice. I am Jenna Ermold, one of the podcast hosts, and I'm flying solo today as a host, but uh, that's okay because I have the amazing Dr. Sharon Berman with me today, who is one of the Center for Deployment Psychology's experts on suicide prevention. And we're really thrilled to have you join us today on the podcast. Thanks so much for coming, Sharon. It is a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. You're a repeat offender. You've been here before and we hope to have you again. You're always a pleasure to talk to. Uh, So we wanted to sit down with you today and talk about, um, you know, sort of an uncomfortable topic or what can sometimes be an uncomfortable conversation that providers have to have with their clients uh, in the hopes of making it more comfortable. And uh, that topic is mean safety. Uh, and, and so, again, Sharon has a, a wealth of information about suicide prevention in general. But today we wanted to really kind of zero in on mean safety. But before we go any further, can you orient everyone so we're on the same page. What do we mean when we say mean safety? What does that encapsulate? Yeah, thank you for asking. So really a lot about the work around kind of reducing access to lethal means really started from a public health approach, um, really looking at kind of large scale epidemiological studies, reducing access to toxic pesticides in entire countries, reducing access to over-the-counter medications in entire countries, um, legislation around firearms, all kinds of different things. And what epidemiologists saw over the course of years, of decades, in fact, was that when this type of legislation was implemented, that suicide rates reduced pretty significantly, which was a huge finding because for a long, long time, I think there was this misnomer, this misperception that you know, if somebody wants to die by suicide, they'll find a way. So the assumption was if we reduce suicide rates using one methodology, then we'll just see an increase in another methodology, but the rates will stay the same. But that's not what we saw. And so um, lethal means counseling really comes from this idea of how do we take this public health approach and make it this one-on-one clinical intervention? How do we work with the patient that's sitting in front of me and work to reduce access to lethal means during this time of suicidal crisis when they're the most vulnerable so that we reduce the likelihood of them acting impulsively um, in moving towards suicidal behavior where maybe otherwise they would have had a change of heart or or some other, you know, less adverse outcome could occur. That's really great to actually get the history behind that. Um, and, uh, you know, definitely what we're going to focus on is that one-on-one interaction in the room. Um, so there's, there's two directions I want to go. One is... When we think about, um, and, and actually we, we chatted a little bit before this, and I think this is interesting too, it wasn't always called 
safety counseling or, or, or lethal means safety counseling. It was means restriction uh, counseling prior to that. And, and can you say a little bit about sort of, you know, we, we're in this culture where we are predominantly interested in working with a military connected culture, although outside of that as well. And, you know, it's a population, it's a group of individuals where certain um, types of weapons, firearms, for example, are a tool of the trade. They're, they are um, maybe used for recreational purposes, but there's something that is associated with their duty, with um, sort of performing different types of work. Uh, and, and so there's sort of this, this military culture overlay to this topic as well um, that I hope we'll talk about. But what, what was happening there when, when it went from restriction uh, to what it is now? Yeah, I think you're you're touching on a lot of things. First of all, you're recognizing really that our service members and veterans have a unique relationship with their weapons, right? It's not unusual for service members and veterans to maybe collect uh, weapons. And, and, you know, this is something that's familiar. It's acceptable within the military culture. And so having that honorable, unique, even, honorable, you know, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so it's something that we want to recognize, especially in this time where we're um, highlighting the importance of cultural competence and this fun, fundamental kind of relationship that service members and veterans really have with their with their weapons is something that's critical for us to, to just even acknowledge, to just even be aware of. Now, I think a lot of the conversations initially that talked about restricting access or means restriction or things like that really came from that history that we talked about a moment ago, looking at that public health approach. So really, really thinking about restricting access to toxic pesticides or, or things like that kind of at the large scale. And yet what researchers have now found is that that type of terminology really kind of emphasizes the sense of loss of autonomy, this restriction that individuals, when you're working with them clinically, are going to, I think, you know, not surprisingly have a reaction to. Absolutely. Now, the funny thing is, is that that was never really the intent. The intent was to increase safety, right? That was really the intent of the intervention ever since it was initially developed was how do we increase safety during this time of suicidal crisis? How do we work together collaboratively with the goal of mitigating harm? And one way to do that is through responsible handling and storage of firearms, for example. So how do we actually create more safety for the person sitting in front of us struggling and most most service members and veterans will even speak to kind of how they can recognize that if their best friend, if their unit member, if their, uh, you know, brother in arms was having a challenging time, that they would also kind of want to help increase their safety. And so there's been a huge shift in the language. Some of our uh, kind of most knowledgeable researchers in the field, folks like Thomas Joyner, like Craig Bryan, have spent a lot more time kind of focusing on the importance of language and even have conducted a number of studies in which they just simply started replacing terms like restriction with safety, really just emphasizing in our language that the goal is not indefinitely to restrict access to firearms, but rather to ensure safety in the short term. And I think that's so important because when somebody's in crisis, they're they're kind of grabbing at small bits of things, and and that word restriction really could trigger this totally other as you very. Uh, you know, eloquently articulated, uh, sort of have this unintended effect and versus, you know, really this focus on safety and making that really clear in language. Um, language matters a lot. So that's that's interesting to you. And uh, hopefully there's been more success with that language. What do you think 
keeps providers or, or what are some of the, the challenges that providers who are working with clients who are in suicidal crisis, what gets in the way of, of having that conversation and about, you know, doing an effective mean safety counseling session, if, if, if that's probably not the terminology, but we'll go with it. Uh, what gets in the way of them doing that uh, at all or, or well? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm not certain that I have the answer, but there has been some research looking at things that do create some barriers. And I, and I think that there's a number of probably different factors that are impacting. One is I actually think our own belief system. So as clinicians, as providers, there's been a lot of studies where um, researchers have gone into um, places like emergency departments and have done interviews with providers and asked, why didn't you ask about access to lethal means? And one of the things that commonly comes up in qualitative research is this misperception that if somebody really wants to kill themselves, they'll find another way. So what we refer to in the research literature is mean substitution. So there's no point of even asking because they'll find another way. The irony is that um, that is not in fact true, is that the method that people use in suicidal acts depends largely on availability of the means. It's not the level of distress. It's not the level of intent. It's not any of the, those things that actually determine the lethality of the method they choose. It's simply the convenience. It's simply what they have most accessible and available to them. And so it does make a difference, um, not to mention all of that epidemiological data that I talked about. I think the second big thing is just that it's an uncomfortable topic. I think especially think about civilian providers who are working maybe in community mental health setting and the majority of their patients are not necessarily, you know, our military connected populations, but they are maybe seeing a couple of veterans or somebody in the guard or the reserve. And, and I think that the conversation around access to lethal means is one that we as clinicians Um, can sometimes be uncomfortable with. I certainly wasn't taught to have these discussions in my graduate program. Yeah. So it sounds like, you know, there's some myths and preconceived notions for both of those things um, that, so maybe part of it is just provider education that, that, you know, sharing this information, which this is part of the intent of this podcast to kind of break some of those myths that if I, if I reduce access over here, they're going to go over there, but then also, um, you know, maybe just doing some education about how to make that more comfortable and knowing its effectiveness, I think really will drive that as well. Providers are more likely to do things that they know work. And we have great data at this point that it is, a, you know, a really critical part of, of caring for somebody in suicidal crisis. I know we've been talking a lot about firearms um, because, again, that, that kind of goes with the military population. What are some broader, uh, you know, sort of looking at other means? Are there other uh, mechanisms to reduce means across different types of means. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it takes a lot of creativity, which is where the collaborative nature. And I think understanding that as a clinician is really critical. I am not coming in working with a service member or veteran and telling them you have to do this. I'm coming in and I'm saying, Hey, I'm worried about you. I want to make sure that you're safe. What can we plan together that you're comfortable with in order to reduce, uh, in order to increase your safety during this this time of crisis. And so there's various things that you could do. I mean, even within firearms alone, there's a menu of options. It doesn't necessarily mean that I have to take their firearms out of their home. It can mean that they put them in a lockbox and lock them up and give them a key to a buddy. It can mean removing the firing pin. It can mean uh, removing all of the ammunition from the home. Anything that we can do to procrastinate that accessibility, procrastinate the suicide in essence. But when we look at medication, 
medications, if somebody has had a history of overdosing, I think the first and easiest thing to do, kind of that low hanging fruit is just getting rid of excess medication, expired medication, medications that they're no longer using as their prescriptions have changed over time. Maybe bringing in their psychiatrist, not having a discussion with the psychiatrist behind the scenes, but getting agreement from the patient and then bringing in their psychiatrist and saying, hey, just for a short period of time, rather than doing 30 day prescriptions, can we work on just sending out seven day prescriptions to just reduce access or maybe working with a loved one or a supportive other? Again, really depending on the method, it might um, include removing um, sharps from the home. So maybe knives or razors or things like that. If you're talking about um, you know, folks that um, have had a suicide attempt or have thought about suicide by jumping off a bridge or going in front of train tracks. Well, how do I increase safety in those situations? I can't remove them from your neighborhood, but is there a different route that you can take to work or can you carpool with somebody? Or is there something that you can do? Can you call your best friend as you're driving by that place that is particularly triggering to you? What can I do to increase your safety even for those things that I can't completely remove? I can't get rid of the train tracks or the bridge um, or all of the rope in the world, right? So what can we do to create a safer environment for you? And I think that creativity and that collaboration you know, we do that in, in so many EBPs and so many of the evidence-based psychotherapies we do. The whole idea is here's what we know we need to do to get you better. And us working together creatively and collaborating on this is going to help us be more effective. So, you know, really clinicians are taking that same tool, that, that same set of skills and applying it to this context. Um, but, it, but, you know, the general idea being increase the steps it would take to access or, or put, put barriers in the way of, of getting to uh, the lethal means. And um, what about this sort of also maybe, maybe another myth that if I bring this up, if I have this conversation, it's going to increase distress and increase likelihood um, or sort of plant an idea in, in somebody's head. Um, any of those kinds of myths come into play in terms of why perhaps providers don't engage in these behaviors as well? I'm certain that they do. I'm certain, certain that they do. And there's been decades of research looking at kind of, if we talk about suicide, do we plant this idea? No, there's no evidence for that. That's been a longstanding misnomer. But having these discussions um, don't actually increase the likelihood that somebody is going to have suicidal thoughts or engage in suicidal behavior. Rather, I think what it communicates is I can tolerate it. I can tolerate your distress. You can have a big affective response. You can be emotional. This can be triggering. You can be in crisis and I can tolerate it. And we can have a discussion and you don't have to be afraid to talk about things in the room. You don't have to be afraid that you're going to overwhelm me emotionally, but we're just going to talk about it very factually. And I've talked about it before with others and I'll talk about it again after with yet others. And, and, and this is okay to have this conversation. I think it gives a little bit more permission, um, for them to reduce some of the stigma, some of the fear, some of the, uh, you know, anxiety that they have around those discussions and, and normalize their experience um, to the point where they can actually reach out and get the help that they need. And, and then potentially have similar conversations in their environment as well. I mean, I think when you have that effective conversation with your provider, um, having it with a family member or a colleague to, to be able to sort of continue, because, you know, a lot of suicide prevention is done in the natural environment of the person, you know, in the, the lived experience, you know, the real day-to-day -day kind of experience. 
what what about resources if providers wanted to like get more training or are there some videos out there or if there's videos to show clients what do we have to share in terms of resources yeah i think there's a number of different things that are available and they all provide um, i think different types of information so there's the com training the com training is stands for Counseling on Access to Lethal Means. And this was developed by SPRC, the Suicide Prevention Resource Center. And it's basically a training that anybody can access. It is completely for free. And it really helps providing different scenarios with how to start to have these discussions with different types of patients. What do you do with an adult patient maybe versus an adolescent patient and how you bring the parents in and what if they think it's not an issue and how do you engage in this type of discussion? Um, Craig Bryan has done some really groundbreaking work um, around how to really incorporate a motivational interviewing stance. So this is a challenging topic. This is really, really, really difficult to bring up with patients. They might feel overwhelmed when we're starting to talk to them about how to, you know, remove access to lethal means, especially firearms. And so he talks about how important it is to really start to take this motivational interviewing approach and actually breaks it down into these four different components where he talks about engaging with the patient focusing on a, on a discussion that's talking about safety, evoking or exploring thoughts about safe storage, and then creating a plan. And so those are the four steps that he takes within this motivational interviewing approach, really taking that exploratory kind of stance um, and really getting a better understanding, a curious stance of what's going on with the patient. Um, Greg Brown has done some great work um, really kind of uh, taking a different tactic where he's incorporated things like uh, a, a mean safety plan and a, a means receipt. So an actual document where everything is written down so that the plan is documented. But what um, Greg Brown has focused on is really incorporating a supportive other. Is there somebody in your support system, in your network that we can bring in? If it's your buddy, Joe, that's going to take the keys, can we actually bring him into session, make a plan, include him as part of that plan? That way he can extend and expand your support system. And we could talk about kind of why we're doing this and when we come back together, whoever it is, but how do we bring in that supportive other? And even talks about what resources we need to give to that supportive other. What are some tips and tricks we could give them to help them be supportive to the patient who's in suicidal crisis, but also recognize when they're reaching their limits um, and maybe need to reach out to some professional help to support them in helping their loved one. Those sound great. And we will try to um, make sure we link in the show notes ways for, uh, you know, if you're interested in getting more information about any of those um, individuals and, and approaches that uh, Sharon just talked about, we'll make sure we link those in the chat for sure. Any other, um, we're, we're going to actually shift, I guess, at this point, uh, we always like to leave our listeners with what, as you might remember from your last podcast, we call an actionable intel, you know, things to really walk away with and, and take to their practice. If you had to sort of give providers a couple tips, a couple things that would be actionable intel, what would you encourage them to do, you know, if, if it's next steps or things that they need to incorporate into their practice around this issue? 
Yeah, I would say first and foremost, know the legislation in your area. There's different legislation from state to state. There's different um, guidance and requirements, um, whether you're working with a civilian community versus whether you're working on base. That's going to guide the work that you're doing, right? So first of all, know the laws in your area. There's a great website, and I'll provide you the link to it after this, um, called Means Matter that was developed by Harvard University that really kind of breaks down all of the initiatives and the current legislation across the United States from state to state. So know what's permissible within your state, just to get that in the background before you even start the discussion. The second thing that I would say is recognize that this is a collaborative effort. This is not where I'm coming in and I'm telling a patient, listen, I need to keep you safe. We got to get those guns out. It's having a conversation and really including, I mean, really kind of in many ways, it's it's not any different than a lot of what we talk about in CBT, right? When we talk about really that collaborative approach, when we talk about collaborative empiricism, right? You are not the problem as the patient. This is the problem. Suicide is the problem. Depression is the problem. PTSD is the problem, whatever it might be. And you and I are working together to help um, strengthen you and work on, you know, uh, work on this problem together. So really taking that collaborative approach, we're not forcing them into things. We're not necessarily calling the police and having them bang down doors and take out their weapons. That's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to elicit their buy-in. And I would say that my third tip is to do that. I think the most effective stance is really to go through some of the, um, the content that Craig Bryan has come up with really in his uh, technique, which is available in the uh, new manual that he published. It's the, um, uh, the brief, uh, the BCBT, the Brief Cognitive Therapy for Suicide Prevention. I can't even think today. I apologize. Um, but that uh, BCBT manual does a really, really, really nice job. It's the one that was published just in 2018 by Craig Bryan and David Rudd. Um, it does a really nice job of walking through a discussion of the mean safety counseling using those different techniques, the engage, the focus, the, the, the evoke and the plan to really kind of use that motivational interviewing stance, I think, in the Socratic questioning um, to really get patients engaged um, you know, and, and, and help them to realize their own personal and genuine motivation for changing behavior, right? So even though we as clinicians might be guiding the discussion in a particular direction, these techniques, I think, help inspire patients to really kind of help them create and formulate their own plan for acting on safety procedures, which feel comfortable for them. So I would say that would be my third tip, bring in that motivational interviewing and then the last thing I would say is concretize the plan. If you're bringing in a supportive other like Dr. Brown uh, really recommends doing, which I think is a fantastic tactic, or if you're just working with the patient individually, concretize the plan, write it down, have the patient write down the steps, talk about how long you think this might be for. Let's talk about this maybe again and revisit it in two months. Again, highlighting that temporary nature um, of removing access to firearms. Those I think are, are kind of my four biggest tips. The last thing I'll say is that, sorry, I know I've been talking You said the last thing was the last thing, Sharon. So I don't know. Well, All right, number five. Thing, I promise, five <laughs> is um, I think really just providing some psychoeducation. I, I know it seems obvious to us as clinicians, but providing some psychoeducation to patients, highlighting things like I'm not trying to take away your autonomy. I'm not trying to fight your second amendment, right? I just want to increase safety. Also, this is not intended to be forever. It's intended to be temporary. These are little 
pieces of psychoeducation that I think are really critical discussions to have with patients to reduce some of their anxiety about um, letting go of access uh, to their, you know, to their means at home. Awesome. I'm going to, I'm going to recap them real quick and then um, (laughs) we will, we will wrap it up. But it sounds like number one is, you know, get that knowledge about what the legislature says in your state, that resource we will definitely link. uh, Sounds fabulous. I think um, sometimes you know, because providers are so busy and and life, you know, can feel so frenetic, you don't want to wait until you're in the middle of the crisis to kind of figure that out. So kind of doing that ahead of time, having a file with some of that information at the ready so that you're not having to do that um, when when things are kind of escalated already. That sounds like a great idea. Um, Really getting the client to collaborate with you against suicide um, and kind of externalize it. You guys are problem solving together, increase their buy-in so that you're not at odds. It, it sounds like reviewing uh, training content or, or manuals are at BC, B, no, I can't say it. BCBT mm-hmm. for suicide prevention. Craig Bryan is one resource, but I imagine there are others as well, but maybe spend some time getting a little more buffed up on, on how to be most effective with mean safety counseling, making sure your plan is concrete uh, and, and written down and uh, easy for the client to understand. Again, especially with so much distress, the more concrete and uh, readily available, the better. And psychoeducation, I imagine for the patient, but also maybe for family members and support people, um, you know, other providers. I think making sure our our colleagues are understanding our our methodology and what we're doing and the why behind it is really important as well. So don't be afraid to, uh, you know, provide psychoeducation where you think it would be helpful. Does that about sum up that the, sums it all up. And I have no other last things. Like the that. protracted uh, <laughs> actionable intel. Those were great. Those are great. And, and if you can't tell, um, one of the reasons why we love having Sharon on, on our faculty and doing these trainings is she's super passionate about this subject. And I think that that came out in this podcast. So we want to thank you very much for joining us today on Practical for Your Practice. Uh, we plan to have you back, so don't get too comfortable uh, and uh, really do appreciate all the work and the training that you do in this area. And, and I, you know, I think for providers out there, if things like this come up, you know, please CDP has a general consultation line that you can shoot an email to if you need clarification on something um, that, uh, you know, you can't find a resource or you're looking for a training, uh, do reach out and we try to support folks the best we can. Suicide prevention trainings uh, are, are readily available through CDP. They, they are offered fairly frequently. Uh, so we'd love to have have you come join us for one of those. And Sharon might be the instructor and you can hear more of what the wonderful thing she has to say. Thank so you thanks. so much for having me. Thank you too. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Practical for Your Practice. Please feel free to subscribe, rate, and join in on the conversation in the comments. Until next time.